Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is where we're going to be today. We're continuing to go through different psalms this summer, taking a break from what we have been doing, which was going through the book of Acts, verse by verse. And we're in the middle of a series called Summer Psalms. And the reason um, that I really felt led to do Summer Psalms this summer um, was that we were coming into a new phase in our church life where we uh, coming into this building and this tremendous blessing that God's given us. If, for those of you who are, might be here and unaware, this building and this land was given to us. Originally, it was by an anonymous donor. Eventually, we came to know that donor. But the, the land and the building were given to us. We haven't paid a dime for this facility here or for the land that we have here. Now, some of the stuff on the inside we've, we've purchased, but, but God's been so generous to us. Even the chairs you're sitting in were given to our church. And so we have this tremendous period of blessing that we've come into. But as often happens with God's people, is that sometimes the blessing can become an idol, or the blessing can become a distraction. Not because God designed it that way, but because we're sinful people, and we tend to get distracted easily, and we tend to make things into idols when they weren't intended to be idols. And what I mean by that is worship, being the people of God, really has nothing to do with a physical structure or land. God wants people, as Mark said in um, one of the, in between one of the songs, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. That was the whole point to the woman at the well. She said, our people worship here at this mountain, and you guys worship in Jerusalem. And she was trying to get Jesus, trying to pin him down. Which one's right? So you could put it in our vernacular today. We worship here in this building, and that church over there worships in a school. Which one's right? And Jesus says, I want worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so as we came into this summer, I was thinking about that and thinking about how I didn't want the building to become too much of an idol for us. And so I thought, let's talk about authentic worship. And if you want to talk about authentic worship, you go to the book of Psalms, this collection of poems and songs by David and by other writers that's just this collection of authentic worship. Just genuine, heartfelt, raw worship. And that's what the book of Psalms is filled with, is just worship. Alistair Begg, um, and if you don't know who he is, he's a, he's a pastor, uh, and, and I, I um, love this illustration he gave. He said, the book of Psalms is like a medicine cabinet for the soul. It's like a medicine cabinet for the soul. Uh, yesterday, my daughter woke up, Olivia woke up, and she had a fever, and my wife sent me to our medicine cabinet. We really have a drawer. Sent us to the medicine drawer, and I had to find Tylenol, you know, to get the fever down. So I went and found the Tylenol. I was searching through, found what we needed. I had to find the specific thing I needed for the specific situation she was in, the specific um, uh, symptom that she had. And that's sort of the way we can look at the book of Psalms. There are, there are poems in here that deal with um, uh, thankfulness. There are poems that, in here that deal with guilt. There are poems in here that deal with our anger when God does things the way we, not, in, things, in a way that we don't want them done. That this is just raw emotion and worship of the Holy God that we have here. So it's like a medicine cabinet for the soul. And certainly our souls are filled with infirmities that need medicine. And one of the infirmities of the soul that we all suffer from is unconfessed sin. And so as 
I thought about that. I intended to go to the medicine cabinet this morning and preach on one of the confessional or penitential psalms. And there are six of them in the book of Psalms. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, and Psalm 130 are all confessional psalms. Matter of fact, every single one of those psalms, we can tell through historical documents, were used regularly by the early church as a confessional part of the worship service. One of the things that's disappeared from modern-day worship services is a time of confession during the worship service. And we're going we're to pause, we're going to confess our sins to the Lord. And so these psalms are good for that, and they help our soul to confess our sin. And that's where I was headed this morning as I discussed with Deemer this week about, or last week, about what psalm to preach on. We settled on Psalm 32, and confession is a key part of this psalm. But as I prepared for this psalm, um, I really couldn't get past verses 1 and 2 and really realized that this week's psalm is very much uh, sort of a sequel to Deemer's sermon that he preached last week, which was Psalm 1. And so um, I, we are going to talk some about confession, but I'll go ahead and prepare you in advance. This is going to end up being more than likely, unless the clock hand back there just gets stuck, this is going to be a two-part sermon because I had such a hard time just getting past verses 1 and 2. There's so much there. And so we're going to take our time. We're not going to try to outrun God here, and we're going to go through this psalm, and more likely than not, part 2 of this psalm will be next week, which deals a lot more with the confessional side of the psalm. But please turn to Psalm 32 if you're not already there. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, we certainly want you to be able to have a Bible to read from. And, uh, or you can read along on the screen. We'll have it up here on the screen for you. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of our guys in the back will bring you a Bible. And you can keep that Bible if you, if you need a Bible at the home. We are a people of the book, a people of the Bible. And we believe, I had a discussion this week with someone uh, back and forth about the Bible, and he called it a most holy book. This isn't a most holy book. This is the most holy book. This is God's inerrant word for us. It's our only guide for life and for practice. So if you need a Bible this morning, please raise your hand. The scripture will be on the screen as well. Psalm 32, and as it says here, this is a masculine of David, which means it's a teaching psalm. It's a teaching poem, starting in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and, whose, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David shifts here from talking to God. Now he begins to talk to the congregation in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray before we continue. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this psalm, this poem, this song written by David thousands of years ago, Lord, the human condition has not changed a bit from that moment that David wrote this. We're still sinners, fallen way short of the glory of God. We're still in need of forgiveness. We're still in need of constant practice of confessing our sin before you. God, I thank you for the rich theology that's found in this text today. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant me the grace to preach it. As um, Mark rightly said, he's not the worship leader. I rightly say that I'm not the preacher. Your spirit needs to be the preacher. Your spirit needs to be the one. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that you would minimize the messenger, maximize the message. May you increase and may I decrease as we listen to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 32 begins with the exact same word that the psalm that Demer preached from last week began with, which is the word blessed. You remember Psalm 1? Let's go there real quick. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed. And this word blessed, we talked about it last week. It means happy. The easiest translation for it, matter of fact, your translation might say happy is the man. Um, happy is what it means. It means happiness. It, it, it's, it's actually in the plural, which when it's in that tense, it means a continuing flowing of happiness. A deep-seated, deep-rooted happiness of the soul. And this is a very, very important passage when we think about this being a blessed person, being a happy person. Last week, in that psalm, in reality, what we saw were the results of blessedness and of happiness. This person who chooses God's way, remember Deemer's sermon, there's two ways to live, but only one way to life. I love the way he ended that sermon. There's two ways to live, but only one way to life. And blessed, happy is the man who chooses the right way. He's a person who delights in God's law. And therefore, here are the results of the blessedness. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water. He's strong. He's fruitful. He's not withering. He's prospering. And Demer spent a good bit of time last week once he got to verse 6. And verse 6 talks about God knowing the way of the righteous. When Demer got to verse 6, he spent a good bit of time talking about how None of us are righteous. Therefore, we need God to do a work in our heart in order to be righteous. So he he talked about, the psalm talks in general about the results of happiness, the results of blessedness. But Demer pointed to the source of our blessedness, which is us being made right with God. And that's what this psalm talks about today. So this psalm, which is the second psalm in the book of Psalms that starts with the word blessed, happy. This psalm gets more to the root, to the foundation of our happiness, of the Christian's happiness. Matter of fact, I dare say it's the only way that anyone can be truly happy. And it involves exactly what Deemer talked about last week, whoa, which is our righteousness. Did my voice just change? Did I just have some sort of spiritual experience here, or did the speakers mess up? I don't know. 
Anyway, it sounded kind of weird there for a second. So as we think about this happiness, bottom line is this. Here's our bottom line. Now, sometimes when I message, I'll give you a bottom line. What I mean by that is if you forget everything else, if you fall asleep from this point forward and we have to shake you and wake you at the end of the service, at least remember this, that the truly happy person is the fully forgiven person. And that's what this psalm teaches. The truly happy person is the fully forgiven person. Ultimate, true, deep soul happiness is found not in money, not in peace of mind, not in prosperity or health, or anything else the world might offer. Ultimately, man is unhappy when he's not right with his Creator. And so the ultimate source of happiness is to be made right with your Creator. The deepest form of happiness is to find forgiveness of our sins and acceptance from our God. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The truly happy person is the fully forgiven person. And the first thing I want us to see, okay, and you can read it there on your notes and fill in the blanks. In order to experience true happiness, we must understand our condition. Okay, look at verses 1 and 2 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. There are three words here the psalmist uses to describe our condition. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Those are often used together in Scripture. If you want to call it, it's the unholy trinity, if you will. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And they're more than just synonyms. They are synonyms, but they're more than that. Because each word gives us a deeper and fuller understanding of our condition. The word transgression literally means to step over a boundary. So if there's a boundary here and I step over it, I'm transgressing. Your Bible may say trespass. We understand that word more than we understand transgress. Trespass, because if there's a sign on a piece of property that says no trespassing and it's on a fence, you know that if you cross that fence, you are trespassing. You are transgressing. And that's what the word transgression means. It carries with it the idea that we have an intentional violation of God's laws. God has set the boundary and we have intentionally walked across it. Now, kids, don't follow my example, but when I was a kid, I remember my cousin and I used to love... Um, cave hunting. We would go looking for caves. We lived in, uh, when I was home on furlough, we, we were in south central Kentucky, which is cave country, and we loved go looking for different caves and stuff. And, and I remember my cousin said, I found this great cave. I said, great. So we packed up our stuff. We went, I went with him, and we get to the fence, and it says, no trespassing. And he says, but it's such a cool cave. And so I gave in. I failed, and I walked across that fence so we could go see the cool cave. And we almost got in a lot of trouble for doing it because it was a dangerous cave. We shouldn't have been there in the first place. God has set boundaries, trespasses for our, our boundaries for our good. And when we walk across those boundaries, when we trespass that line, when we transgress against the Lord, we are doing something that is dangerous, deadly to our soul. Another way to understand it might be a, a sign in a parking lot that says handicap parking. I hate it when I see people park in handicap parking. They either don't have the little wheelchair on their, their license plate or don't have it hanging from the windshield. They have trespassed. That's not for them. That piece of land right there is reserved for people that are handicapped. 
So that's what transgression means. The next word he uses is the word sin. The word we use more often. A word we don't like to mention much today. Matter of fact, uh, maybe it's kind of ironic that the fact that the, the key to happiness is to start dealing with sin. Today we think if you're going to talk about making people happy, don't mention sin. The Bible says if you want to talk about being happy, you've got to deal with sin. So, so we want to talk about that. And so we're not going to be ashamed to talk about sin and deal with sin biblically in this church. Okay, unlike the, the positive action, positive meaning it's, it's an action we take, unlike the positive action of crossing a boundary, which is a transgression, this word carries with it the idea of falling short. We have fallen short of God's standard. So the, the, the word could be used of an archer, and he's shooting for a, a target, and he shoots and his arrow just goes and falls way short of the target. That's what the word sin means. In Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. That's what this word means. It's not living up to God's standard. You want to use another illustration? It'd be like you're playing basketball and you shoot an air ball. You don't live up to God's standard. And then the third word here is the word iniquity. And this word is very interesting because it carries with it the idea of something being perverse or inherently evil. Something has an internal corruption or an internal corrupt nature. The word could be used, the word iniquity in the Hebrew could be used of a fruit that is rotten on the inside. It may look okay on the outside, but from the very core, it's rotten. And so that's the idea of iniquity, that our very nature is corrupt from the inside out. It represents our sinful nature, and it makes us men and women do the other two things. Our sinful nature is why we trespass. Our sinful nature is why we fall short of the glory of God. So this is the terrible condition of mankind. David uses three words to help make sure we understand the terrible condition of mankind. We intentionally violate God's law. We've all done it. We have all intentionally at some point in our life violated God's law. We have, we have either lied, we have stolen, we've whatever. We have intentionally trespassed. All of us have. And, and we also all have fallen way short of, of God's standard. I mean, let's be honest, we fall short of our own standards for ourselves, don't we? I, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do this. I'm never going to do this again. And we set standards for ourselves, and we always fall short of our own standards. How much more have we fallen short of the standards that God has set for people? And so, finally, we also must all recognize that we are corrupt. We have corrupt natures. The Bible clearly teaches the doctrine of total depravity. We are not as some may assert, inherently good people. The opposite is the truth. We are inherently evil people. That's the condition of mankind. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. We've inherited a sinful, corrupt nature that makes us rebels against a good and perfect God. Any, I want to say this as loudly as I can. Any religious system or teaching even one with a Christian label that teaches that man is good and all we need to do is somehow access the good within us in order to overcome the problems of the world is satanic to the core because it's exactly where Satan wants us. Satan wants us to be man-centered. 
Satan wants us to think we can somehow find the solution within ourselves because if he has us there, he has us on the complete opposite side of where we need to be, and that is we need to be relying on God alone because we have nothing within ourselves in order to be right with God. This scripture here teaches us that we have nothing within ourselves in order to be right with God. And so the opposite of what the world teaches is true. So I've said that in order to experience true happiness, we must understand our condition. And I believe that with all my heart. And it may seem counterintuitive, but the key to happiness doesn't start with puffing us up, with uh, improving upon our self-esteem. It comes from acknowledging honestly, humbly, how sinful we are and what a terrible predicament we're in. It'd be like going to a doctor. If you go to the doctor and you've got massive heart disease, you've got blockages, and you are in need of some serious uh, heart surgery, major bypass surgery. But the doctor doesn't want to offend you or make you feel too bad. So he's just going to tell you you got a few problems, but not go into details to what those problems are. I think we would all agree that that is not the right thing for the doctor to do. That is not the loving thing for the doctor to do. We want the doctor to tell us what our condition is. So David here, he's not going to back off. He's going to say, this is the condition of mankind. We have a problem, a serious problem. And so it needs to be dealt with. And so the next point in your notes there is in order to experience true happiness, we must understand God's solution. In order to experience true happiness, we must understand God's solution. Just as I said, there's a threefold problem here, transgression, sin, and iniquity. So the psalmist brings our attention to three words to describe God's solution. Three words to describe God's solution. Look at the first thing he says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now the word forgiven means to take away. Uh, it literally means to roll away. To roll something away. Um, so it means for something to be removed. So blessed is the man whose trespass against the law of God has been removed or rolled away. How many of you in here have read The Pilgrim's Progress? Have you read Pilgrim's Progress? One of the greatest books you could ever read if you haven't read it, try to make it a point to read it because it's such a wonderful book. Now, you may not want to read the old English version. There's updated versions. There's versions that you can read with your family, with your kids. But one of the most beautiful scenes in Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian comes up to the hill of Calvary where the cross is and his burden that he's carrying on his back, which represents his sin, is loosed and it falls off his back and, the, and it says it rolls away and it rolls into a grave. And it's this beautiful picture of this word here, forgiven, of our sin rolling away, of God removing it from us. Um, one of my favorite hymns when I was a kid was, At the cross, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The key to happiness is to understand God's solution. The next word he uses is the word covered. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now this can easily be understood. It can easily be understood because the word can actually mean a couple of different things. And he doesn't mean here covered in the sense that it's still there. And God's just hiding it. That's what we do with sin. But God covers it with something that eliminates it. 
That's the picture here of God covering our sin with something, and we'll talk about that something in a second. God covering our sin with something that causes it to vanish. Um, it's not like my kids who, uh, when I ask them to clean their room, clean their room and, and, and shove stuff under the bed. That's not what God does with our sin. He doesn't just kind of hide it. He, he eliminates it. So I guess a better illustration would be if you have a stain on your clothes, okay, you can either put a patch over it, which is what men do. It's what we do when we try to hide sin. Or it can be God can apply something to it that causes it to disappear. Okay, God puts, um, I don't know, what do you put on stains to get rid of it? Clorox, something, I don't know. I don't do my clothes. And so you put something on it to make it disappear. And that's what God does. God applies something. He covers our sin so that it's eliminated, not so that it's just hidden. Matter of fact, there's an intentional contrast. David draws an intentional contrast between what God does and what we do when he uses the exact same word in verse 5. Look at verse 5 real quick. This is David after he's talking about his confession. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. It's the exact same word. He said, I did not cover my iniquity. God's already covered it. I'm not going to cover it. Because David understands that all he can do is put a patch over it. But what God does when God covers sin is to eliminate it. I think there's lots of ways that we cover our sin. Maybe we just ignore it. I'm just going to cover my sin by ignoring it. Or maybe um, I'm going to blame it on others. Okay? It's not my fault that I did that. It's not my fault I fell into that sin. It's so-and-so's fault. It's the devil's fault. It's, so it's whoever's fault. And we blame it on others. Or we deny it. We just deny it. Or we just blow it off. It's not that, not that big a deal. It's just a little sin. I didn't murder anybody. And so there's lots of ways that our corrupt human nature tries to hide sin. Man has always tried to hide sin. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned before God, what did they do? After they've sinned, the Bible says they hid because they were ashamed. Ultimately, we're ashamed of our sin, and they hid because they were ashamed. God says, where are you? And they're hiding. And they say, we're hiding because we're naked. We're ashamed. And the biblical picture that happens, in, it, it, it sets up the picture of the gospel. If Deemer were here, he'd be proud. I'm talking about the gospel from Genesis 1, right? Deemer, this is Deemer's area. And, but what happens is that God gives them a covering. What does he give them a covering of? He gives them a covering of animal skins, which means that death, blood, has been shed for the very first time. For the very first time in the history of the world, blood is shed. It's shed by God to cover up Adam and Eve. And it's a picture of the gospel. We try to hide our sin. God covers it up and deals with it through the shedding of blood. And so there's this beautiful picture in, in uh, the book of uh, Genesis that goes all throughout Scripture of God blotting out our sin. Verse, uh, well, Isaiah 43, 25, God says this, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will remember not your sins. Now the third word here in verse 2 is the word count. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, I'm going to camp out here probably for the rest of our sermon. Is it really that late? All right. I'm going to try to move. I'm going to camp out here on this word count because it's very, very important. And this is where we see the gospel just come shining through. This word count means to reckon or to impute. It's a financial or a legal term. 
Okay, we have a spiritual account, and it is filled with sin. We are in debt, and the wages of our sin is death. Okay, but blessed, according to the scripture here, is the one whose sin is no longer counted against him. The ledger has been wiped clean. Really, this idea of counting, of an accounting, involves the other two words. Okay, when David says that, that the sin is not counted against us, first of all, it has to be taken away. So it has to be forgiven. Forgiven means to take away. And secondly, something has to be put into our account to make us right with God. And so something is put over our sin. And so really, this is the doctrine of justification. This is the doctrine of justification and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, righteousness on our behalf. Let me define justification real quick for you, and then I want to give a picture of it that the, maybe the kids can understand a little bit better. Justification is the judicial act of God by which he pardons all the sins of those who believe in Christ and accounts, accepts, and treats them as righteous in the eyes of his law and its demands. Justification involves the pardon of sin, and justification declares that all the claims of the law are satisfied in respect to the justified. Linguistically, the verb to justify is a forensic or legal act of a judge. In the Bible, justification does not mean that the law is relaxed or set aside, but is declared to be fulfilled in the strictest sense. And so the person justified is declared to be righteous and therefore entitled to all the advantages and rewards arising from perfect obedience to the law. And Paul takes the book of Romans to help us understand this. So what I've got to try to accomplish in five or ten minutes, Paul gives us a whole big old long book for. To talk about justification by faith. In particular, when he gets to chapter four, he quotes this passage of scripture. This is why I had to camp out on verses one and two. I couldn't get out of verses one and two because they're so rich theologically, and they take us to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the doctrine of imputation. And so uh, I want us to read Romans 4 real quickly. Romans 4, starting in verse 1. Not the whole chapter, but just a few verses. Paul says, What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed God, and it was counted, same word, counted, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, that means faith, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, same word, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So now he's about to quote what David said, and he quotes the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Bible that they had available at that time, and he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And again, he uses that word. It's the word count. So there's an interesting thing that Paul does here with this passage. He explains justification by faith alone in the positive that God is counting something on our behalf when we have faith that God is our only way, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. When we place our faith in him, something is counted to us. And he uses an example of Abraham from Genesis 15 verse 6 to say it was counted to him as righteousness when he had faith. And so something was put on his account. 
which was the righteousness of Christ. And then he uses the example of David to talk about what's removed from our account. See, that's the other half of the transaction here. Something is put on our account and something is removed, which is our sin. Now, one illustration of this would be, and I've used this before in here. I think I used it two weeks ago, but I don't care. I'm using it again. Is, is, is the illustration of a credit card. Okay, let's say I'm, I'm needing to go somewhere. I need a ticket to Ethiopia. And, and in order to get this ticket to Ethiopia, it's going to cost me $10 million. And not only do I have to have $10 million, I also have to get rid of the $10 million I already have on debt on this credit card. So I have $10 million of debt on here, and I have $10 million I've got to raise in order to get to Ethiopia. I got, and I need both of those things to happen. And so when, when the trans, heavenly transaction occurs that, that enables a person to be right with God, and that's the only way you can be happy is to be right with God, when that transaction happens, first of all, the debt has to be canceled. But, so on the cross, what happened is that Christ canceled our sin debt, which is a lot worse than $10 million, with a lot worse interest that goes on for eternity. And so God has to cancel the debt, but that's not enough. Because also we have to have perfect righteousness. And so he has to give us something. Christ gives us his own perfect righteousness. On our behalf, he imputes it to us. The word impute also means count. He counts it to us. It's an accounting term. One thing is taken away, which is what David talks about. My sins have been not counted against me. They've been removed from my account. And then we know from Paul that by faith, righteousness is accounted to us through Christ alone. And that's the picture of what happens at the cross. We are forgiven. The debt is removed, rolled away. We are covered. Something is given to us. And according to the scripture, what's given to us is the very righteousness of Christ. So the way the sin is covered by God, the way it's blotted out, is through the blood of Christ. His righteousness blots out our sin. So our sin is rolled away, it's covered, and therefore our account is set right with God. So we see it all happening. These three words, forgiven, covered, counted, it's all part of the doctrine of atonement. And it's all part of what the scripture has always taught. In Leviticus chapter 16, we read about the day of atonement. And you know what they would do in Israel on the day of atonement? Two things. They would take two goats, and on one goat the priest would lay his hands and they would pray over this goat, and symbolically the sins of the people would be put upon this goat, and then they would send it out in the wilderness. It's, it's called the scapegoat. It's where we get the word scapegoat from. But you didn't know that. Some people just say, oh, so-and-so is the scapegoat, and they don't really know what they're saying. The Bible says the scapegoat is the goat that carries the sins of the people. It's taken away out into the wilderness. And then the second thing they did on the Day of Atonement, and by the, word, by the, by the way, the, the word atonement comes from that word count. It's the same root. Okay, so on the Day of Atonement, the other thing that would happen is that the blood would be sprinkled on the altar. The sacrifice would be given and the blood would be a covering. So two things happened on the Day of Atonement. There had to be a covering of blood, something put over the sin, and there had to be a taking away that, 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 that goat would go out into the wilderness never to be seen again. That's what the Bible has taught from the beginning, from Adam and Eve to the temple, and, and for, to the tabernacle in the wilderness, to the temple, to Jesus Christ, that we have sin and it's a problem and it needs to be taken away, it needs to be rolled away, and we can't do it on our own. We need God to do it, so we place all our hope, all our faith, all our trust in Him to do it, and that He's going to provide a righteous sacrifice, and on this side of the cross, 
we know that that righteous sacrifice was the Lamb of God, Jesus, who gives us his own righteousness so we can stand before God, not based on anything we've done. We didn't will our sin away, nor did we live the perfect righteous life that God requires. It's all about Jesus. It all points to him. He's exalted. He gets all the glory. And we're happy. We're happy. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is the happiest message in the world. God would be an unjust judge if he just overlooked sin. I told you I had a discussion this week. I had a long discussion this week with someone who claims to be a Christian, but their theology is not Christian theology. And I asked, well, what, what happens with sin? And they said, well, all of that's just absorbed back into God. God's just absorbed. He's the, all, he's the absolute truth, and he just absorbs. And I'm thinking, so all sin is just absorbed? That doesn't make any sense. God can't absorb our sins. And so, what, what is that? The Bible says that God is a just judge. He has to deal with sin. I want you to look closely at, at what David says here. When he says in verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He does not say, Blessed is the man because God doesn't count iniquity. He said, Blessed is the man against whom God does not account iniquity. He is saying that God has to count iniquity. God has to. He has to account for it with his just wrath. He has to. Blessed is the man whose wrath, who doesn't receive God's wrath. He doesn't just say God's a good God. He's just going to overlook sin. We all know that's unjust. I mean, how many of you were in school and there was a teacher's pet? And the teacher's pet always got away with stuff. And it frustrated you. In, in my case, it was this kid named Eric. Eric Howard. And the reason Eric Howard got away with everything is because Eric's dad was the basketball coach and the principal. And so Eric could put a thumbtack on your seat and teacher could see it and not do anything to Eric. And that was unjust. The rest of us would get in trouble. You throw a little paper airplane at you're in detention. What? Well, that's not fair. And so all of us understand unjust and, and injustice. And it would be unjust for God just to overlook some sin. Ah, I'm not going to worry about that sin. Just come on into heaven. That's not how it operates. God has to deal with the sin. And either we will pay for our sin in an eternity in hell, pay for that sin in an eternity in hell, or Christ paid for the sin on the cross. There are only two ways to live, and only one way to life, and only one way to happiness. God has to deal with sin, or else he's an unjust God, and he's not worthy of our worship if he's an unjust God. So one last illustration, and, uh, and I'll cut the sermon short, even though it's, y'all are saying it's already long. One, one last illustration here. I had Jordan help me out earlier. And so Jordan, come on up here. Is he here? Oh, he's in the back. Come on up anyway, buddy. All right. Jordan's one of our um, middle schoolers, and we let our middle schoolers get involved in serving because we want them to take on significant tasks in our church. We don't want our teenagers just sitting around viewing life as a pause when they get to do whatever. We want them serving God. And so he's one of our young teens who's serving God through our ministry back here. Jordan went out and got this shirt nice and dirty for me. So will you put that on? All right. There you go. All right. Thank you. I'll try not to get you too dirty through the process here. All right. Okay. And the picture I want us to see is, is that's us. Even our righteous deeds, according to Isaiah, are like filthy rags before the Lord. Even the things we consider good, okay, helping little old ladies cross the street, giving to the Boy Scouts or whatever, those are like filthy rags before the Lord because nothing we do is sufficient to satisfy God. He wants perfection. And so the, the, the picture here of justification is that 
there's a, there's a transaction that occurs. Here we are, all filthy and dirty and nasty. And Jordan, did it, was it hard to get that thing dirty? A little. A little? Well, I was hoping you'd say it wouldn't be hard because it's not hard to get shirts dirty, okay? Maybe it was because I gave him the task to do right before church. But, but it's not hard to get dirty, okay? But, but to try to clean that is going to be impossible for you because it's, it's ruined. It's stained. And so the transaction that occurs is, number one, there's a rolling away. There's a taking away of our sin, which is what Jesus did on the cross by dying for us and absorbing God's wrath on our behalf. And so there's a taking away of sin. But that's not all. I think our gospel message is, only, is insufficient sometimes. That's why I'm preaching this the way I'm preaching it today, because I'm afraid that in the church we, we oversimplify it. We go to our kids in an attempt and in a good, noble attempt to make it easy for them to understand, say, just ask Jesus into your heart and all your sins are forgiven. You get to go to heaven. That's true, but it's insufficient. And you know what? Kids can accept the basics of the gospel at a very young age. Mine have. Many of y'all in here have. But there needs to be a growing and an understanding of the gospel and understanding what God has done in their life and an acceptance of that. And so that's why now, more so than when I was a children's pastor, I encourage parents to take their time and make sure your kids understand the gospel message. So there's a double transaction. I should have brought both shirts down while I was up here, but I didn't think about that. So not only is our, our sins forgiven, we are given a righteousness, and I should have had this unbuttoned too, a righteousness, an alien righteousness, not our own, because even once our sins are forgiven— we're still corrupt. And so we need an alien righteousness given to us. Here, put that on. Nice, clean shirt. Okay? An alien righteousness, which is Jesus' righteousness. Not ours. That we're given so that we can be accepted by God. And that's the picture I want you guys to have, kids. It's not about, oh, I asked Jesus into my heart and I get to go to heaven. I was a children's pastor. I've been there when the clown gives the invitation. How many want to go to heaven with Bozo? What kid in the world doesn't want to go to heaven with Bozo? But do we understand the gospel? Do people sitting in the pews of our church today understand the gospel? You can have a seat, but I need my shirt back. All right. Thank you, Jordan. You're doing a good job back there, too. Do we understand the gospel? It's not just this, oh, yeah. Go to heaven. Fire insurance. I mean, have you ever met someone that doesn't want to go to heaven? I, I've never met anybody that says, you know, actually, I really like to go to hell. No. Everybody wants to go to heaven. The problem is we don't preach the gospel in our churches anymore. We don't preach the whole gospel. We preach this easy believism, and we have people come forward, and no wonder, no wonder, no wonder people stray from the gospel because they never embraced it in the first place. No wonder, no wonder people don't know how to deal with their sinful lives. They don't know how to deal with their crumbling marriages. They don't know how to deal with their kids. They don't know how to deal with life because they're not dealing with them in a gospel-centered way. Instead, they're trying to deal with them in a man-centered way. And if we understand that everything for life we don't, we're not only saved by faith, we are sustained by grace. So when you come into trouble in your life, the answer isn't, well, i got to figure out how to overcome this. The answer is, I don't have the righteousness to deal with this problem. So I believe in the gospel message that I have Jesus' alien righteousness. So in faith, I come to you, Jesus, help me through this situation. You are the only one who can make it work in my life. The gospel needs to inform everything we do in our life. And we have false conversions. It's a, it's a plague in the church today, false conversions. 
Because people have not truly embraced the gospel. They've not embraced true happiness, which is to understand the gospel. And instead, they've embraced something, a man-centered version of the gospel that's distorted and insufficient. So we need to be like David. We need to get back to the full gospel. Now, the rest of this passage that I will preach next week in a shorter version, the next rest of this, is, it talks about dealing with that. So we're going to get to confession. How do you confess your sins to God in a gospel way? How do you confess your sins? Because you know what? Even though we are made right with God, we still are in the process of being sanctified. Legally, we are right with God. But we are in the process of becoming what we already are. That's the phrase I like to use. That we are being sanctified. We're being made into the righteous people that we already are before God's eyes. So there's this process of sanctification, which is also part of the gospel. And so how do we, how do we confess our sins in the light of the gospel? How do we live in the light of the gospel? How do we treat others in the light of the gospel? So the rest of this psalm is in the light of verses 1 and 2. And so we'll go through that. And so this morning, though, I want to conclude just with this. If you're here this morning, and I don't know the condition of anybody's heart here, anybody's, even my own children, I don't know the condition of my child's heart. Only God does. I have an idea, but I don't know for sure. But if you're here this morning and you've not embraced the full understanding of the gospel, then why hesitate? Come to Jesus this morning and just say, yes, I need that rolling away of my sin. And I need that alien righteousness on me. Maybe you came to Jesus and you thought, well, I'm just going to pray a prayer, and the prayer got rid of my sin. If you think the prayer got rid of your sin, then, you're, you, then you've been deceived. Maybe you got baptized and you thought the water got rid of your sin. If you're here and you think your baptism got rid of your sin, you've been deceived. Our sin has to be rolled away by Christ alone, and we have to receive his righteousness in order to be right with God. So if you're here this morning and you just need to talk with me or um, talk with maybe a member of our church about what that means some more. We'd be glad to talk to you about that. But let's just close in prayer right now and have our time of response. So bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's respond to the Lord. And Mark, I want you to pick one of your last two songs, just one, to come lead us in after we pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we get ready to just respond to you, God, I pray that we would respond in spirit and in truth. Worship is revelation and response. And God, I pray that your revelation through your word that has gone out today, that you, would, that you would purify it, that you'd put a filter, a Holy Spirit filter on it, so that anything that I've said that's an error, that doesn't square with Scripture, that doesn't square with the gospel preached by Paul, and the gospel preached by Jesus, and the gospel preached by David, if anything doesn't square with that, then, then Father, that you'd filter it out. Because I believe, Lord, as the Apostle Paul said, if I or even an angel are to preach a gospel different from the gospel written down in the Holy Word of God, then I'm to be accursed. And so I pray, Father, that you'd keep me from preaching a false gospel. And Lord, that you would just let your word go out and not return void this morning. Lord, help us to respond to you. Maybe we just need to respond in confession. Maybe we need to respond in, in talking about what salvation really is. Maybe we need to respond by just bringing our offering this morning and, and bringing our prayer requests. But this is a time for us all to respond. So God, I pray that you have the freedom to work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would as Mark leads us in one closing song. And we have a time of response. We're doing nothing but the blood. Um, yeah. Here's what we're going to do. So we're going to sing this chorus in Russian. Nothing but the blood.
Um, so it it's like this: Kak daroga struya omivshaya menya ana silne more onichtolishkrov isusa. We'll sing it in English afterwards, but it goes like this. Katarogastruya omivshaya menya anasil nemore onichtolishkrovisusa. Sing that one more time. Maybe a couple more times. So you guys can get it. Kakdaroga. Kakdaroga struya. Omlishaya menya. Onasil naimore. One more time. Kaktarogastruya omishaya menya onasil nemore. Now in English, what can wash? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, for my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing. 
may be seated. Um, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we have gone a little bit long today, so thank you for hanging in there and worshiping with us. That was without the kids element and everything. Wow, we really knocked it out of the park today. Um, let, just, just in case you're visiting with us and you're a little weirded out by singing in Russian, let me explain that a little bit real quick. Uh, we have Liana here who is visiting from Russia. She is uh, being hosted by the Evans family um, this uh, summer, and so we thank thankful that Liana's here, and so we wanted to sing a song that she could sing along with us. And so, um, so that's why we're doing that. We don't, it's not like we're going to be singing Swahili next week or anything like that. We just, you know, just thought I'd explain that. You know, I don't know, we might. We might. We might. So um, let me just mention a couple of things real quick. Next week's going to be an exciting Sunday for us. Um, we're going we're to have our fellowship meal. Once a month, we have a fellowship meal downstairs in our fellowship room during the, during the semester when we're having our Bible studies and stuff, we actually cancel our Bible studies to have the fellowship meal. So every, the last Sunday of every month we have our fellowship meal. Right now we're in a summer Sabbath from our Bible studies. But um, next week is our fellowship meal. And uh, I wasn't here the last one. I was out of town. But I heard that, you know, we, we were right down to the final crumbs of food that remained. And so let me encourage you to bring food, first of all. Uh, and maybe bring a little bit of extra because next week we actually have um, the Georgia Baptist Children's Home Boys actually going to be here with us. We're going to have the, the cottage that we are supporting, that we're helping with, is uh, going to be coming here. So the Georgia Baptist Children's Home, um, at least I think seven or eight boys are going to be here. Seven or eight teenage boys. So bring a little extra food next week, and uh, if you can, and stay for our fellowship. It's a great time to meet people, to learn a little bit more about our church. 
and that will be next week. We're also going to have our first baptism in the new building next week, which I'm excited about, if everything stays on course. And as long as we can find out from the construction company how to operate the baptistry, we should be good. So um, we're, we're going to have a baptism, and uh, that's going to be exciting as well. And maybe we'll sing a song in Swahili. Who knows what we'll do next Sunday. The other thing I want to point out is right here, uh, we are making, we're having a collection for the Georgia Baptist Children's Home of supplies they need. It's in your bulletin thingy, uh, a list of the supplies we need. Uh, we really, I'm hoping we get a lot more than what's right there right now. That's a pretty small amount right now, for even for a church our size, that we can gather more stuff than that. Just bring it. Uh, you can bring it during your response time. If you want to be a part of your response to the Lord and worship, bring it before the service if you want to. But let's load this thing up. We're partnering with other Baptist churches in the area to supply the children's home. They've been hit by the economy just like we have. Now, I know the temptation is to say, well, we've been hit hard by the economy, uh, and therefore we're going to cut back on some of our charitable work or charitable, charitable giving or charitable uh, contributions. And I want to challenge you to break that paradigm. Actually, try to become more generous during times of need and see what God does. See what God does. So let's bring some more stuff for the children's home next week. I think that is all my announcements, really, for right now. Um, we thank you for being with us this morning. And if you're visiting with us, thank you for visiting with us this morning. I hope you come back next week and, and visit with us again. Let me just close this in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father.